Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Herodotus from Halicarnassus here displays his inquiries, that human achievement may be spared the ravages of time, and that everything great and astounding and all the glory of those exploits which served to display Greeks and barbarians alike to such effect be kept alive, and additionally, and most importantly, to give the reason they went to war. So begins the first book of history. In one sentence, Herodotus of Halicarnassus expresses not only the desire to memorialize what might otherwise be forgotten, but also poses a problem that he wants to answer, how it was that the Persian Empire and a collection of Greek states on its far western periphery went to war. He is perhaps too tactful to add to it the problem of how it could be that such a ragtag group of nobodies should actually beat, or at least stand off, the most powerful empire of its time. With me to discuss the father of history is Jennifer T. Roberts, professor of classics and history at the City University of New York. The author of numerous books, she is author, importantly for our purpose today, of Herodotus, a very short introduction published by Oxford University Press, and has also co-edited, co-edited the Norton Critical Edition of Herodotus Histories. Jennifer Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Al. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, we've uh, it's been a long time in coming. We've had a nice time, you know, sending emails back and forth. So... Um, I've been waiting for this for a long time, <laughs> actually, ever since I talked to Barry Strauss about Thucydides. Mm-hmm. Um, and Which was a wonderful talk, and I very much enjoyed listening to it. And we'll put that in the links um, to the show notes. Um, I, we'll get to the great uh, Herodotus-Thucydides uh, controversy in, uh, by the end of our talk. But first, I want to unpack uh, the Herodotus' uh, thesis statement, which I read from Tom Holland's uh, recent translation of Herodotus. Um, that, first of all, that human achievement may, may be spared the ravages of time. Um, is that just what he's saying? He wants to preserve memory? He, he is very much dedicated to preserving memory. He has a poignant sense of the transitory nature of human existence. He includes a wonderful vignette in his account of Xerxes' march from Persia to Greece, which took quite a long time, involved a lot of different peoples, and was quite a show to watch, I'm sure. <laughs> He, he tells how when Xerxes pauses to, serve, to survey his forces, he sees the site of the Hellespont completely covered by his ships. He sees the land nearby teeming with his soldiers. He's absolutely delighted, and he calls himself a happy man, and, and then he bursts into tears. Mm. Well, his, his uncle Artabanus, who's also his advisor, is standing next to him, and Artabanus says to him, so you know, what's with this uh, sudden change of mood? And this gives Herodotus an opportunity to make interesting observations in the mouth of Xerxes and later of Artabanus about the nature of the human condition, which is something that interests him immensely. Mm-hmm. And this is how it goes. Yeah. 
everything great and astounding and all the glory of those exploits. Uh, we'll talk about Homer in a little bit uh, right. and Herodotus and Homer, but that's how would how would you translate that? What's the what's when he says great and astounding? What are the is that the is that the the excellences of of the glories? Of well, it's it's I think it's more than that. It is definitely the excellences. There's no question about that. No question about that at all. But it is the wonders, the marvelousness, the incredibleness, the amazingness. Herodotus says again and again, and here's another amazing thing. Hmm. Oh, and look, and when I was staying with these people, I discovered the most amazing thing in their civilization. He describes Queen Artemisia from his hometown of Halicarnassus, who served, of all things, as an admiral in Xerxes' navy. He says, and here's an amazing thing. Artemisia, a woman, was a captain in the navy. He again and again has his breath taken away by all the different wonders that he sees, whether it's the pyramids of Egypt or a fabulous custom for getting all the girls in town married off. Whatever it is, he's, he's thrilled. Look, it's, it's amazing. Look how they do that. Mm -hmm. And, and he's so, he, he manages to, his enthusiasm is contagious. So we find it all amazing. Mm -hmm. And we like to travel with him all over the world and see what new amazing thing we're going to find. And then, find, I mean, so he, he says so far he could say what um, could characterize um, sort of the, the version of history called antiquarianism, uh, which right. merely wants to, which, which merely, I should say, importantly, wants to preserve the past right. as best as it can. Um, he he characterizes a sort of uh, very much Homer in, in some ways, trying to preserve excellences or uh, other people trying to preserve curiosities. But then right. he says something really different, maybe for the first time, to give the reason they went to war. He poses a historical problem that he wants to solve. That's just – it's all there in the first sentence. It's all there in the first sentence, and it, it goes to the question – that you raise about Herodotus and Thucydides, because Thucydides also explains that he wants to write about the Peloponnesian War because he wants to correct the record. He wants to give what he calls the alethestate prophesis, the truest explanation of why it was that the war happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we know very little about Herodotus other than this book itself, but um, perhaps we should... Um, Probably the best background for him is the background of the war in, in like ten minutes. What he's right. describing, what he's describing, uh, he is an Ionian Greek, which I think at his time, maybe they were the Greekiest of the Greeks, um, <laughs> but now is uh, it's it, it, it is a lost world um, for many reasons. So. Probably uh, Herodotus as an example of the glories of the Ionian Greece, then on to the Ion uh, Ionian Revolt, etc., etc. Go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Herodotus was uh, very aware that it was a lost world. He was very aware of the transitoriness of time and Xerxes' sorrow at looking at all of his men and his ships and bursting into tears and saying that he was reflecting on how short human life is, because he says, of all this multitude, not one will be alive a hundred years from now. And Herodotus was very aware of that. And he tells the story of the Persian Wars as a story that went on for a very, very long time, beginning with the foundation of the Persian Empire, 
by Cyrus. He points out that Cyrus has his life saved as an infant by one woman, hmm. and then he is killed by another woman. Herodotus is very sensitive to the role that women play in history, something that we could not say of Thucydides. No. But that is another story. So he founds the Persian Empire, Cyrus does, and he conquers Lydia, which had been ruled by the very wealthy king Croesus, and so he obtains control over the Greek cities on the coast, on the west coast of what would be today Turkey, the part of the world that was then called Ionia. And in Ionia, there were many glittering cities, the glitteringest of which was Miletus, the most illustrious city in Greece at that time. Athens certainly was not yet at that time. Miletus was so powerful it had sent out dozens of colonies during yeah. the great age of colonization. And both Miletus and its colonies were distinguished for their city planning in grid patterns. In fact, the most famous city planner of the Greek world, Hippodamus, was from Miletus. They sent, out, yeah. they sent out something like 60 colonies? I mean, to... Oh, more. I think it's... Well, we don't know how many. Yeah. It was said that there were close to 100, but the, that's not the credible. Black sea. Certainly 60 the, is credible. The central Mediterranean, the western Mediterranean. I think Mar is Marseille, Massilia, is that one of their colonies, I believe? Gosh, was Massilia I th a Milesian colony? There are, still, there are so many. That. When you start looking around, you, it's it's extraordinary to see the, yes. the, the reach of this, of this city. And then yes, if, extraordinary. And then, and, and then Ephesus and Heraclitus and you know Anaxagoras and Thales and all these 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 names that we know but don't know. In, right, in there were some extraordinary thinkers in Miletus, as you say, Thales and a fellow named Anaximander, who Anaximander. developed something of a proto-evolutionist theory. He put forward the idea that the first animals were a kind of fish and that the first humans were generated from fishes. These fellows were really original thinkers. They were not satisfied with mythological explanations of the cosmos, and they applied themselves to the question of just what the universe was made of, and they came up with some astonishingly creative answers. Mm -hmm. So that was in Miletus and in cities near Miletus. An extraordinarily educated and intelligent woman from Miletus became the common-law wife of the Athenian statesman Pericles, those Milesians really got around. Well, when Cyrus took over, he began taxing the Greek cities more heavily than they had been taxed under Croesus. And in time, some of the Greek cities decided to revolt. And their leader took a map, one of the first maps we know about. He took a map to Greece with him, to mainland Greece, and he goes to Sparta. And he meets with the Spartan king Cleomenes, and he shows him the map. Cleomenes is a little concerned. He's not very familiar with maps, but he knows something about distance. He asked him how long it would take to get to the capital of Persia from Sparta. And well, you know, from the sea. And, and Aristagoras says, well, maybe three months. Well, that's the end of that discussion. But Aristagoras comes back. He does not give up. He goes to Cleomenes' house. And he wants to talk to Cleomenes, but Cleomenes' little girl Gorgo is there, Herodotus says. And Aristagoras says, well, you know, she's got to go. Cleomenes says, oh, no. You know, anything you say to me, you can say to her. Huh. Well, Aristagoras keeps offering Cleomenes more and more money if he'll get involved in the rebellion. And finally, Gorgo says, father, send this man away or he will corrupt you. <laughs> she was quite a girl. She was nine years old, it was said, and she grew up and she married Leonidas, who, mm -hmm. of course, died at Thermopylae, leading with 300. So Aristagoras had better luck at Athens. The Athenians did contribute some ships to the revolt. The revolt was a 
disastrous failure. Miletus was destroyed by the Persians in the revolt. A playwright at Athens wrote a tragedy about the destruction of Miletus that upset the Athenians so much because they so identified with the Milesians because they were both Ionian Greeks. And Phrynichus, the playwright, was fined and told never to put that play on again. <laughs> so that was the end of the Ionian rebellion. But it had made King Darius of Persia very angry. Mm -hmm. And he'd always had his eye on Greece, if you ask me. And this gave him a pretext for invading Greece. So he sends his army and his fleet over. He doesn't go with them. He sends them with a fellow named Datus. And they land finally at Marathon, where they're greeted by the army of Athens and its ally, Little Plataea. And they are defeated. And it was the shot heard around the world. Yeah. How could this be that this ragtag bunch of Greek states, and we should remember always that it was 31 Greek states, which sounds like a lot, but there were over 100 who did not join, who either sat it out or sided with the Persians. The Persians were very powerful and scary. And if you were on an island somewhere close to the Persian Empire, you didn't want to get mixed up in this. Mm -hmm. But it was an incredible thing for the Greeks to realize that they had defeated the Persians. They kept waking up in the morning and thinking, did I dream this? Yeah, and the, and and the Spartans weren't even there. And the Spartans weren't even there, but Miltiades, a great general, was there, and the Greeks were hesitant to fight because they were so heavily outnumbered, and Miltiades gives a stirring speech that Herodotus reports. He gives it to the fellow who was supposed to be in that charge of, in charge on that day, but he didn't think was doing such a great job. He says, Callistus, it is up to you right now to determine whether Athens will be enslaved or will remain free. And he persuades the Greeks to fight, and they fight, and they win. They have a big advantage in one respect, actually in two respects. The first respect, they have much better armor than the Persians, and also they know how to swim. So that when the Persians are heading for the water and they're in the marshes, the Greeks can cut them down mm -hmm. uh, very easily. This was an advantage for the Greeks throughout the Persian Wars, that all Greeks lived near the water. Mm -hmm. But Persians, many of them, were very much inland and could not possibly swim. They'd never seen water. So this was another big advantage for the Greeks. Well, of course, Darius plans to come back and get him, but he dies. And he's succeeded by his son, Xerxes. And Xerxes isn't sure he wants to do this, but he's under a lot of pressure, and he does undertake a second expedition to Greece, which arrives about 10 years after the first one. And what, in the meantime, the Ionians have sort of gone over to the Persians. Uh, and, At, right. They're scared. Yeah. And they, um, of course, notoriously, Thebes will go over to the Persians, but the Ionians give hundreds of ships. Yes, they absolutely do, so that many of the ships in Xerxes' navy were, in fact, Greek ships. Yeah, yeah. And we have, we have to remember this. So they get to Greece, Xerxes' force, they march, and they march, and they march, and they get to Greece, and Herodotus says there were so many people in the army, they drank the rivers dry. He says there were millions, not very likely. And they get to Greece with their millions. Herodotus might have misunderstood uh, per numbers, which, which could explain, explain mm -hmm. the millions and millions. And Xerxes sends scouts to see the forces at the Thermopylae Pass. The Spartans have sent 300 guys up there with their king, Leonidas. There are other Greeks there helping them. And 
They send only men who have sons already born to them who can be Spartan soldiers if the men should, hypothetically speaking, all die. Mm -hmm. Well, she sends a scout to look at them, and they're combing their hair. And he doesn't get it. He says, why on earth would they? Well, he has a Spartan with him who had been exiled from Sparta, a former king, and he says, that's what they do when they're preparing to die. Well, Xerxes keeps trying and trying, and finally he gets some very good news. There is a traitor who has come to talk with him, and he is going to tell them about a road up to Thermopylae that he didn't know about. And so he takes it, and the Greeks are massacred, and that becomes, oddly enough, a legend in Greece, even though it was a defeat, because they bought time for southern Greece, the 300 Spartans, all of whom except two who were not there, died. They bought time for the rest of Greece, and they showed Xerxes that the Greeks were people to be reckoned with. When he comes down with his navy to the area of Athens, the Greeks fight a great naval battle against Xerxes the Battle of Salamis, and they win. This battle is memorialized by the playwright Aeschylus. Mm -hmm. Several years later in his play, The Persians, when he talks about the Greeks singing the war paean, row, row for your freedom, row for the freedom of your families. This was what the Greeks began to associate with themselves. They began to develop a binary opposition in their minds between Greeks and Persians. Persians were all slaves of the king. Greeks were free people, uh -huh. and they were fighting indeed for freedom, and they were remarkably successful. And sometime later, a few months, they fought another battle, a mainland battle at Plataea against the Persians. At first, it looked as if there wouldn't be good omens for the battle, and you can't fight a battle if you don't have good omens. But finally, the Spartan commander decided, oh yeah, the omens are great. <laughs> and they ran into battle, and they were successful. And that was a remarkable thing. And there was another battle rumored to be on the same day. We don't know over in Ionia. And that was Macaulay. We're also it, victorious. Yes, it was the Battle of Macaulay. That's another, right. Another sea, another sea battle. Another sea battle. Yeah. Um, and the, the result. I mean, so Plataea is in some ways the most extraordinary of them all. <laughs> but we don't know. It's it's, it's not as well known uh, as as Salamis. We should emphasize that by this time Athens has also been destroyed. Right. Um, the the Acropolis, the the old temples have been cast Absolutely, down. They've been yes. burned. Yes. Uh, the entire population of Attica, uh, or certainly of Athens, has been moved to the island of Salamis. Exactly. Uh, uh, in just across the very narrow strait from the mainland. Um, so Athens, one of the truths or, or myths or uh, true myths uh, that became important to Athens was that the entire, that the, that the city had gone to sea um, it, it had to fight for its freedom. Um, yes, there had been an oracle that Athens would be saved by a wooden wall. And most Athenians believed that was the wall on the Acropolis and they should defend that. But the Athenians had a very clever politician by the name of Themistocles, and he said, no, the wooden wall is your ships. The wooden wall is your navy. And he was right. Athens was saved by the navy, partly because he managed to trick Xerxes into attacking. When the ships were there in the straits between Salamis and Athens, 
most of the Greeks wanted just to go home mm-hmm. and to abandon Attica, the territory of Athens, to the Persians. And Themistocles was terrified, so he sent a messenger to Xerxes' camp in the middle of the night saying, Psst, Xerxes, Themistocles is really on your side. He wants you to know the Greeks are in terrible disorder. They want to flee to their homes. And Xerxes is trying to decide what to do. And he has a counselor, Artemisia, whom I mentioned before, mm-hmm. the queen of Halicarnassus, her Odysseus's hometown. And she says, let them. If they want to flee, why should you attack now? The battle will be yours. The victory will be yours. In fact, there won't be a battle. Just let them flee and everything falls into your hands. And Xerxes says to her, that is wonderful advice. You are the best of my counselors, better than the men. I'm not taking it. <laughs> Xerxes does not believe that he cannot defeat the Greeks in a sea battle, and he wants the glory of that. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, Themistocles is not telling the truth, and when Xerxes and his ships sail into the straits, they see all the Greek ships sailing at them, and they're making a noise, and Xerxes thinks, oh, well, there's an uproar. They, they must be in some kind of disorder. No, they are singing the battle hymn, mm-hmm. and Xerxes realizes he has been had. But too late. But um, too late, as so often in this life. Yeah. Um, so Herodotus does not tell the story in that way, certainly not briskly, uh, but he begins in a very roundabout way. Uh, he begins by, of all things, talking about Croesus, and then yeah. he kind of, what you describes, um, to pace a little bit forward, he does a sort of backstitch, and he goes from Croesus to Gyges, and then he right. talks about the Persians, and then he talks about eventually the Egyptians. He talks about the Egyptians all the way back to as far as you go, and, and, and so on. He goes... He goes about things in a very leisurely way. Um, Why? Why do you think he does that? Right. Well, there is the cynical explanation, which was that he had gobs and gobs of the ancient equivalent of index cards with all this information, (laughs) and damned if he wasn't going to be able to use it. That's what we all said in our dissertation. (laughs) Exactly. But there's more. There's more. Um, He begins his history with a story he does not believe. He begins his history by saying, well, you know, the learned Persians say that it all started with a series of women snatchings. And this woman was snatched, and that woman was snatched, and Helen was snatched, and Io was snatched, and and Medea was snatched. And he goes on about how there was all this tit-for-tat between East and West, Hmm. which culminates in the Trojan War and in the Persian Wars. And then he says, but, you know, I'm not going to say that something like that is true. He says, what I am going to do is to try to get to the origins of things. He's enormously interested in origins, which is one reason for the long-running jump. Mm -hmm. And, And he's also enormously interested in the multiplicity of peoples in the universe and the multiplicity of their customs. He was able to visit some of these in his travels, some of them he just heard about, and he's very careful to let us know what he saw for himself and what he knows only for from report. I think he wants us to understand the rich tapestry of the world, its enormous diversity, and that history is a complex web woven in many places at many times. It's not just a series of glorious battles that people like to tell their children about and for which those who fought in them wanted to be remembered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, 
writes in prose. He does. Isn't now, that something? It's that we should explain why this is something uh, because it's 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 very odd. I mean, has anyone done this before? Um, uh, that we the what we know of Heraclitus and the snatches of philosophers that exist; those were like sort of aphorisms, weren't they? Um, sort of sayings that might have been copied uh, down. Yeah, we 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 don't have very much prose before Herodotus. He certainly wrote the first sustained surviving work in Greek. It's it's very hard for us today to grasp the novelty of this, as you say, a full length book written in prose. I mean, we learned to write and speak in prose before we encounter poetry. Some some of us encounter meter only in singing or listening to music, hearing nursery rhymes. We might say that today the default setting for language is prose. Newspapers, murder mysteries, instruction manuals, all prose. Yeah. But in Herodotus's time, the default setting was verse. In fact, no word for prose had actually been developed yet. The, the foundational texts of Greek civilization, the Iliad and the Odyssey, had been composed in verse. It was to these poems that one generation after another of Greeks turned when they wanted a rich, long narrative tale with many twists and turns. The Iliad and Odyssey were standard fare for recitation as after-supper entertainment in an age with no electric lights, no television, no internet. And the essence of Greek education was musique, poetry set to the music of the lyre. Musique, of course, took its name from the goddesses who inspired it, the muses, and it gave us, in turn, the word music, and from the lyre, we get the word lyrics. But around the end of the 6th century, shortly before Herodotus was born, some Greeks began to write down the great legends of the past in prose, and Herodotus's day, in Herodotus's day, prose was beginning to come into its own, particularly in the burgeoning democracy of Athens, where the first laws had been written in prose already over a hundred years before Herodotus was born. And skill in public speaking, in the assemblies, in the courts, that was soon on a par with birth, wealth, and military prowess as a way to get ahead. Poetry we might say, had been the language of the gods. Prose was the language of people. It was a medium in which people could challenge other people, and they could even raise questions about the gods, the way Protagoras did, when he wrote that each individual person, not some god, is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, of things that are not that they are not. And it's impossible to know, he said, if the gods existed, because two things stood in the way, the difficulty of the subject matter, and the shortness of human life. <laughs> so prose opened the door to all kinds of questioning, and it was there. But Herodotus made a very big decision in choosing to write this very long, long work in prose. There had been some very short quasi-historical works before, but almost all of them in verse. Why uh, do you think that uh, Herodotus ever um, recited his history? I mean, there's a, there's the fa famous little story of the young Thucydides bursting into tears listening to Herodotus doing that. Um, that right, that I, comes I, from I, hundred, hundreds of years later. 
Yeah, but I hope he burst into tears because he thought it was wonderful and <laughs> was inspired to do something similar and not because he thought, wow, this is what passes for history. Um, but let, let, let's hope and, and look on the optimistic yeah. side. Do you think that actually that Herodotus did do that? I mean, was it, was it is there yeah, other indications? Yeah, he, he did seem to because when he talks about the famous debate on government that he sets in Persia, mm -hmm. he says, you know, a lot of people believe that this really couldn't have happened. But I'm telling you, it did. And I, I think that that's because he had given a recitation of, of that. He, he, he went around to various cities in Greece giving recitations, um, sometimes complained that he didn't get paid enough. Hmm. Um, but it was one source of income. Of course, we would love in general to know about Herodotus and money. How the hell did he pay for things when he was traveling all over the world? Yeah. But... Um, we, we do know that he, he gave recitations, and as I said, in a world with no electricity, television, uh, it was very important to have people come around and recite. Originally, they were reciting poetry. They would recite Homer, the, a man who was called a rhapsode, was talented in reciting Homer, and he would stand in front of a group, a crowd, at someone's home, perhaps, in a public square, perhaps. He would plant a staff in front of him, and he would begin. He would begin. That's the beginning of the Iliad. And that was entertainment, was going to listen to someone talk. And from an early, I forget how early the the bill exists of when Athens would pay the rhapsodes to do that to to recite the the right. Iliad and the Odyssey. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean the self also, of course, is a literate society. It's an oral society, and so that's the way that these uh, these important myths um, of of Greek Hellenic consciousness are, are preserved and uh, and passed forward. Absolutely, people did not spend a lot of time reading. We don't know about the literacy rates uh -huh. in Greece in Herodotus's time. It might have been as high as 50% among men, among women, we don't know. It might have been much lower, uh -huh. we, we, we don't know. But curling up with a book after dinner was not a customary thing to do. Very we expensive. probably didn't own any books. Yeah. Um, Herodotus, we, we've indicated how he, he breaks from Homer um, right. majorly in his, in his choice of, of prose, uh, but he, of course, well, it's, I, I think uh, thinking about this, it's impossible to overstate Homer's importance to Herodotus, through, even Thucydides, to Plato. Um, Absolutely. He, he is always looking over their shoulder. and he's, He is always. And they're always looking up towards him. So what, uh, what does he learn from Homer, do you think? He, he learns so much. It was Homer who had provided the model, after all, for both the war story in the Iliad, and the travel tale full of wonders in the Odyssey, and we get both of those in Herodotus. Homer had been greatly pained by the sorrows of war and of human life, and we see this sorrow also in Herodotus in many places, also in that exchange I mentioned between Xerxes and his uncle Artabanus, when Xerxes says, I'm weeping because all these men will be dead in a hundred years. Yes. And Artabanus says, yes, and life itself is so full of sorrow, and it's very short, and there are times when we come to feel that it's much too long because we are in so much 
pain, Homer really gives the first in-depth look at what we might call the human condition. The, the Iliad occasions an almost unbearable sorrow at the spectacle of heroes who are just indomitable in their determination to do their best in the worst of circumstances. They, they often force themselves into battle in what they know is probably a losing cause. Hector says, for, for this I know well in my heart and in my soul I know it. There will come a day when holy Troy shall perish. Mm -hmm. But he still fights. And, and Homer shows us the no-win situation mm -hmm. of two armies fighting when only one can emerge victorious. The situation of women who are forced to become the playthings of war and, of course, of mortals inexplicably deserted by the gods who used to favor them. And Homer is very sensible of the female experience, which is also true of Herodotus in a very dramatic way. Homer underlines the fragility of family ties during wartime in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, but he also, of course, showcases male bonding and the individualism of someone like Achilles that threatens it when he refuses to fight because his honor has been insulted. The war has separated the Greeks and their families from one another. It's going to destroy the royal house of Troy, people we see going about their daily business, even though death hangs over them. In the Odyssey, we see countless important males and females interacting with one another. And this is tremendously important as an antecedent of Herodotus. We see women whose perspectives and agency are very highly developed. Women like the beleaguered but determined Penelope, the nymph Calypso who loves Odysseus but has to let him go, the witch Circe who turns men into pigs. It, it's no wonder that writers from Samuel Butler in the 19th century and Andrew Dalby in the 21st have concluded that the author of the Odyssey was a woman. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody, nobody I know of has suggested that Herodotus was a woman, but Herodotian scholar Carolyn DeWald of Bard College has counted 375 mentions of women or femaleness in Herodotus's work. In fact, he kicks off the work with the story of a woman whose name we never learned because it was not known. Many women in the ancient world had names that were not known. Hmm. She was the wife, first of King Candoles of Lydia, and subsequently of his successor, Gyges, and it's a wonderful story, Herodotus loves stories, and it's profoundly revealing of both Herodotus's view of history and his conception of unaccountable rulers. As, as the story opens, Candoles is happily ruling Lydia. He enjoys not only the privileges that come with monarchy, but also the pleasure of being married to a woman with whom he's completely infatuated. He can't get enough of looking at her or of boasting about her, and this gets him into some trouble. He forms a rather peculiar bond with his right-hand man, a fellow named Gyges, by pressuring him to gaze upon her himself and to do it when the queen is naked. The visual element is heightened in Herodotus' account because Candoles describes the protracted striptease his wife performs it when she goes to bed at night. He says there's a chair in the royal bedchamber and on this chair she would lay each article of clothing one by one as she undresses. And he says, Gyges must perform a most inappropriate act of voyeurism, my God. Candoles will station him behind the bedroom door, 
to do his beholding, and when he has beheld the naked queen, he is to slip out unseen. But of course, the audience can't help participating in this voyeurism as well. We envision the nude queen moving across the room. We wonder, is she tall? Uh, is she broad in the hips? Does her, her hair hang loose? Is it, is it piled on her head? Is she wearing jewelry? Surely a queen would be wearing jewelry. Well, this plan does not go so well. The queen sees Gyges as he exits, and she reacts with impressive cool. We, we wonder, had something like this maybe happened before? Did she say to herself, okay, that does it. This is the last time he pulls this stunt. <laughs> it's curious that she does not assume that a palace coup is afoot. She doesn't cry out for assistance. She obviously knows her husband a lot better than he knows her. What he has been seeing when he was relishing her outward beauty was very misleading. She's actually more of a threat than she is a great treasure. Rather than betraying her emotions during the night, she calmly summons Gyges in the morning and explains that there's a difficult situation because she's been seen naked by two men and one of them has got to go. So given the choice of killing the king or dying himself, Gyges kills Candolis, marries the queen, and founds a new dynasty. Well, Herodotus manages to use this story to red flag several themes that are going to be very important in the histories. There's the danger of crossing boundaries. There are the risky proclivities of autocrats. They do things like invade Greece. The importance of women as actors on the human stage and the very chancy, contingent nature of history. Gyges would never have become king if Candolis hadn't had a screw loose. And Herodotus is also Homer's heir in his interest in fate and the gods, although he came to somewhat different conclusions. There's a lot of discussion of fate in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, although fate is different in each case. In the Odyssey, fate and justice go hand in hand. It's Odysseus's fate to overcome all the obstacles in his way, get back to his wife, kill the obnoxious suitors who've been eating her out of house and home. But in the Iliad, it's more complex Perfectly lovely people like the Trojan prince Hector have unfortunate fates, and even he struggles against it. Mm -hmm. In the fight with Achilles that he knows will be the end of him, he says, so now I meet my fated end, then let me die. But he adds, but not without a struggle. Mm -hmm. Fate is important, but so is struggling against it. And in a sense, that's the entire theme of the Iliad. Fate is important, but so is struggling against it. And Herodotus also has a very strong sense of fate, and it's not always a very happy one. But his gods are not Homer's gods. In the Iliad, when the commander-in-chief Agamemnon has dishonored a priest of Apollo, the priest persuades Apollo to send a wretched plague onto the Greek camp. And Homer describes lovingly how Apollo went about it. Hmm. He says, down from the peaks of Olympus he strode, angered at heart, carrying on his shoulders his bow and his hooded quiver. The shafts clanged on his shoulders as he moved, quaking in rage. The god came down like the night, and he sat apart from the ships. He let go an arrow. He let fly a piercing shaft. Frightful the clash that rang from his great bow made of silver. First he attacked the mules and the circling dogs, but then he let fly a shaft against the men themselves, and the corpse fires burned constantly. Wow, that's Homer. Yeah. It's, it's sure not Herodotus, but it's Homer. His Apollo has a heart. He has shoulders. He has a bow. He sits down. 
This is not Herodotus's idea of a deity. Herodotus rarely expresses belief in a specific Olympian god. What we find in the histories as a whole is sort of a, a kind of transcendent divine force at work. Yes, okay, Hotheos, the deity, is often mentioned, but he doesn't usually specify which one. And he also talks about Tiche the divine chance, Totheon, the divine, and Hepronoia to Theu, divine providence. Hmm. He wasn't unique in this orientation. His approach to that power out there is evocative of the claim we find in the works of the poet Xenophanes, who said, there is one God amongst gods and men, the greatest in no way resembles more, resembling mortals in body or mind. So what exactly does the divine do in the histories? Mm. Well, for one thing, it works a little bit like a force of nature to, remain, to re maintain balance. Why are there few lions but seemingly infinite rabbits? Herodotus <laughs> has an answer. Hepronoia to Theu, the forethought of the divine. The forethought of the divine in its wisdom has made timid and tasty creatures prolific so that the species would not vanish through predation, but cruel and baneful animals produce few young. And he puts this kind of balance in his account of the Persian war battles too. He says that the divine was the source of a storm that dashed a great number of Persian ships against the rocky coast in the dark, he says, this was done by the god to reduce the Persians' numerical advantages at sea and balance out the huge discrepancy between the Greek and Persian numbers. And of course, the divine also acts to punish excess and hubris. We know about hubris from tragedy, overweening pride. Herodotus plainly takes satisfaction hmm. in recording the gruesome end of a Greek woman, Phoretime, Phoretime brought down the wrath of the gods, unnamed, by taking on herself a vengeance suitable only to the divine, and that was wrong. Hmm. When her son, King Arcesilaus, was killed, oh boy, Phoretime, she impaled the people she thought were most responsible at intervals all around the city walls, and it gets worse. L little, well, little, a little much already. Stays the same, yes. It, it, she, she had their wives' breasts cut off, and then... She decorated the city walls with them. But, but she got hers. Immediately afterwards, she died a horrible death. Her body was eaten by worms while she was still alive. And Herodotus says, this happened to show people that vengeance in excess occasions the gods' displeasure. So, so it, the gods are quite present throughout Herodotus, but not as the prime movers mm -hmm. in the war. He makes very clear that the gods are not sitting up on Olympus plotting things while the Greeks are fighting down on Earth. The Greeks are what determines the outcome of the war and the Persians. Mm -hmm. Do you, is, is Herodotus uh, picking up and amplifying uh, a Greek concept of, of moderation? Or is, yes. he, or is, he, is he creating it? Um, I, I would say that he is uh, picking up on it and amplifying it. It was around the same time that the Greek tragedians were writing their great tragedies, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, tragedies with which we associate the idea of hubris, mm -hmm. although many tragedies, it's important to remember, don't have anybody particularly hubristic in them, and that people do not always come to their bad ends because of some kind of tragic flaw. Life is much more complicated than that. 
But yes, this was a very important Greek idea in the classical period that excess was not to be desired. Moderation in all things. Mm -hmm. You um, gave us the the story of uh, Gyges and Candules and Candules' uh, unnamed wife. Um, Herodotus uses, deploys a lot of stories like that, and it, you describe in the book. You describe that as a, a backstitch. Right. He, he goes from uh, Croesus all the way back to the founder of the dynasty, uh, Gyges. Uh, we've described the uh, sometimes the chatty. Um, the I have heard this was the very first time, or I have heard, but I don't believe it, or something like that. He does he right. these things, and this, and then just as the the structure that that backstitch is a structure. The other things are sort of stylistic interpolations. Um, all this to say that Herodotus has a very distinctive style. Um, I'd yes. say even in every English translation, he has a distinctive prose rhythm. Um, and I'm sure that in Greek, it's much more distinctive. Um, what is the connection? Do, what do you think a style says about a historian? That, that's a very good question, uh, especially since the two most famous Greek historians, and rightly so, Arthur Herodotus and Thucydides, who had diametrically opposed yep. styles. Um, Herodotus was earlier than Thucydides, and I, I think we can say that Herodotus thought in terms of an oral universe. He was a chatter. There's no question about that. Thucydides was in a written universe, and not only because of time differences, because the time difference was not very great at all. No. It's possible there was a little bit of overlap between when Herodotus was writing and when Thucydides was writing. But they had very different temperaments, enormously different temperaments. And for Herodotus, I think what he's doing in large part by this backstitching is letting us into his thinking. We go along with him as he says, so-and-so was the first... Well, well, wait, actually, it really goes back to... We, we hear him thinking out loud, and it helps us go along with him in his thought processes, in his travels. We are with Herodotus in a different way from the way in which we are with Thucydides. We follow Thucydides, but we don't feel that we are thinking along with him. Thucydides, to anticipate a little bit of future discussion we might have about this, Thucydides decides for us. He decides what he will put in, what he will leave out. And if he leaves out something that turns out to have been really important, that's too bad. He trusts his own judgment to decide what's important and what isn't. He doesn't trust us. For example, he doesn't tell us very much about the decrees against Megara that many of his contemporaries believed were the cause of the war, because he does not believe they were the cause of the war. And the result is that we don't find out anywhere near as much about them as we need to know to make a judgment. He makes a judgment for us. Herodotus makes a point of saying, I will put in everything, and you can sort it out. Hmm. And that means that we get to be historians along with him. And that's a wonderful experience. Ultimately, the histories was a very democratic text with a sort of multi-subjectivity, an open invitation to us to make up our own minds. We also are standing in the position of evaluators. 
Let me uh, read you to yourself from the beginning of chapter 8. She sits on the floor, big and gray, and increasingly petulant. For a long time she stood, but she got tired. Her eyes say it all. No more stories. When are they going to start talking about me? She is the elephant in the room. She is the doubt that Herodotus, in fact, merits the title of historian, which I have so blithely bestowed on him. Does he? <laughs> or here is uh, Peter Green, um, much more vicious. Here is Herodotus, a garrulous, credulous collector of sailor stories and oriental novelle, ahistorical in method, factually inaccurate, superstitious and pietistic, politically innocent, his guiding motto, Cherchez la femme, elle est noble, pas les dieu. And I for please forgive me, France. Uh, uh -huh. So that was in some ways the old... Um, that was in the old, I don't know, if traditional pro-Thucydidean view of Herodotus, garrulous, right. credulous collector. Um, but instead, so let's let's address that elephant. Uh, Peter Green addressed it in, in one way. What, what's your what's your way of, of dealing with that elephant? Okay, hello, elephant. <laughs> We're going to talk about you, Herodotus. Of course, was a historian. My goodness me. He was not credulous. He was not superstitious. He did not ascribe events to the gods. He did not invent research, but he set the pattern for it. Historians owe everything to him. He invented the idea of history as a coherent but extraordinarily multifaceted story. We might say he put the story in his story, and he traveled extensively in his research, his detailed descriptions of dedications at Delphi in mainland Greece and Miletus in Ionia leave very little doubt that he saw them with his own eyes. He also states explicitly that he fought, traveled as far south in Egypt as Elephantine at the first cataract of the Nile and as far north as the Black Sea region when he was investigating the Scythians. He went to Tyre in Phoenicia. This is what people do when they are historians conducting research. And he didn't even have a grant. He, he also did research by reading. A fragment from the geographer Hecateus of Miletus makes clear that Hecateus was the source for Herodotus's lamentable description of the hippopotamus. Oh, the poor hippo. Complete with horse's mane and tail, if you mm. read Herodotus. Not only hadn't Herodotus seen a hippo, apparently Hecateus hadn't seen one either. Uh, let's play devil's advocate for a minute and ask how Herodotus could have known anything at all about his subject matter as far as it concerned times and places distant from his own world, which most of it did. Mm. As far as we know, he understood no language but his own. His native informants may have been ignorant or they may have been mischievous. You know, you'll never guess what that Greek guy fell for today. <laughs> and, and oral tradition is very unreliable, especially after the third generation. But on the other side, archaeological evidence suggests that, for example, his account of Scythian burial practices was right on. Excavations of burial mounds have turned up such finds as the dozen horses in full-dress regalia that were found in Kazakhstan mm -hmm. in 1999. This absolutely bears Herodotus out. And then there are the famous gold-digging ants. Herodotus has taken a lot of heat over the centuries for the gold digging ants. How could it be, really, that ants dug up 
gold. This was just Herodotus falling for ridiculous local stories. Well, apparently not. <laughs> apparently not, because quite recently it has been discovered that there was very much a historical basis for this, and it might have been nothing but a language problem. He says here about the gold-digging ants, and I'm going to read now in my favorite translation, which is the translator is here, Walter Blanco, from Lehman College, whose translation I edited, so I admit that I have some <laughs> prejudice here, but I think this is far and away the most wonderful translation of Herodotus under the sun. He says, you see, in the sand of this desert in India, this is in Walter's translation, there are ants which are smaller than dogs, but larger than foxes. Some of them have even been caught and brought to the king of Persia. Now, when these ants dig their colonies underground, they carry out sand, just like the ants in Greece, and they do it in the same way, except that the sand they carry up is full of gold. The Indians make forays into the desert for this sand, with each man harnessing camels together to bring it out. Well, let's think about these ants. If they weren't ants, the story could make sense. And in fact, in the late 20th century, a French ethnologist, Michel Pesel, and other explorers too, discovered marmots who were, guess what, throwing up gold-bearing soil while digging their burrows in one of the most inaccessible regions of the Himalayas. And furthermore, the people who lived there reported that they had in fact been profiting from the marmots' labors for a very long time. <laughs> so the Persian word for marmot was taken by Herodotus to mean mountain ant. Well, this isn't really such, such a tall tale after all. And, and in the end, the amount of accurate information in the histories is amazing in light of the many obstacles that stood in the way, mm -hmm. the vast distances, the language barriers, out, ongoing archaeological investigations in many parts of the world confirm the truth of much of what we find in Herodotus. The, the Scythian burials are, burials are just the tip of, of a very large iceberg. Egyptologists continue to be astounded by how much Herodotus got right. And specialists who can read languages that stumped Herodotus have discovered that the ancient texts confirm his findings more often than they refute them. Yeah. But not only that, yeah. the histories is full of examples of Herodotus using his critical faculties as a historian to assess the data that have come to him, just as a modern historian would do. He's a born skeptic. He frequently throws data that's been thrown at him onto the junk pile. In fact, he's more critical of some travelers' tales than later authors were. He categorically refuses to believe that in the mountains in the north, which were probably the Urals, there were humans with the feet of goats, but other sources very happily located men with horses' feet in the north. And medieval writers put men with the feet of oxen in the north. So here, Herodotus comes across absolutely as a historian who analyzed data. There's the, uh, the discovery in the, in the harbor of Alexandria. They've just found the uh, these boats that would go up and down the Nile in the time of Herodotus. And uh, they've... I, I, 
I think I must have seen this right around the time uh, we started to arrange this conversation. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the people were saying, we never understood what Herodotus was talking about when he described them. It sounded absolutely impossible. And now we understand he was right. Everything he says is correct. Exactly. I was just thrilled when I found that article. I sent it to all my students. It was a wonderful discovery to people who have been defending Herodotus for for many years. And also, I mean, it's awfully hard to describe in words how a boat fits together without a picture. So these are these are some of the problems. It's awfully hard to describe uh, how mountain marmots mine gold. Um, some, sometimes it's just the the, the breakdown of language. Uh, Absolutely. So it, the I, I I'm wondering what historians owe Herodotus, and I guess the answer is just about everything. Um, but the very word history is one of the things that we owe to him. So what, what does he mean by it? What, what, what did it mean in Greek when he used it? Right. Um, th- th- this was a new thing that he was doing, writing historiae, as he calls it. Um, it was an inquiry. It was research and inquiry. And inquiry that had answers hmm. that might or might not be true and that needed to be analyzed so it's, and assessed. It's a word that it means de- inquiry. Department of Inquiry or Department of Investigation, really, is what... Exactly, was, yeah. exactly. Department of Detective Work. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so let's... let's we, we've gone over time here, um, but I wanted to... Uh, oh, I didn't want to uh, fail to ask you this, um, since... Your most recent book is uh, The Plague of War, which is a reinterpretation, reexamination of the Peloponnesian War. Um, And you're therefore spent a lot of time with Thucydides. Uh, When I talked to Barry Strauss long ago about Thucydides, I told a colleague that I was uh, going to do that. And he said, oh, Thucydides, who wants to read Thucydides? And very much like the story that you described uh, from uh, the uh, Polish correspondent. Um, the people, um, there's been a great swing, uh, from Thucydides to Herodotus in the last four years, really Mm -hmm. very interesting and, 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 and extraordinary in some ways. Um, I never wanted, I, I, I firmly believe that I can have both peanut butter and chocolate sometimes at the same time. Well, Reese's would be out of business. if Exactly. So, um, what's, how should we think about the two of them together? We just, briskly. I mean, it seems to me silly to think it's one or the other, Um, but what what do you say about that? I'm sure you agree. I I, I do, and I think it's important to bear in mind how much Thucydides and Herodotus have in common, that they were both extremely curious people who were very eager to get at the truth of things and also at the causes of things. Both their works begin with a statement that they are going to be writing about the causes And there are more different things that Herodotus was interested in, to be sure, but they were united in their interest in an explanation for things. And that is, in large part, what history is about. It is an explanation. Herodotus has been coming into his own, as you say, for a generation or two. There was a time when people considered him a lesser historian than Thucydides with his razor-like analytical mind. But Herodotus' work has now come to be appreciated for its openness to competing views, its cultural relativity, its interest in social history, its acknowledgement of the existence of two sexes. 
they are very different people. Herodotus was a very happy man. Thucydides seems like a very unhappy man. <laughs> it's, it's tempting to Im imagine them as, as children, Herodotus playing happily outside, Thucydides either shut up indoors, well, I'd like to say reading, there wasn't very much to read, or sneaking into the marketplace, perhaps, or the assembly, listening to political debates and soaking up the controversies and the rhetoric and maybe even making notes on a tablet. Hmm. There are things that we would love to know about them both that we don't. Where, where did Thucydides spend his time after he was exiled from Athens for losing a key post in the north to Sparta during the Peloponnesian War in which he was a general? We don't know. And Herodotus, when he traveled all over the world, where did he stay? How did he get money? What, what was the worst that ever happened to him on his travels? Was it being fooled by an unscrupulous tour guide? Did he get sick from the change in food and water? Did he wander ignorantly into a bad neighborhood and get mugged? We, we don't know. Thucydides was very aware that some people might find his work on the dull side. We know because he says so. Maybe, he writes at the outset of history, maybe my narrative will be less pleasing to some people because it lacks, the Greek word is mythos, it lacks romance, myth, fiction, but he says, those who want to see clearly things clearly as they were, and given human nature, as they will one day be again, more or less, may find this book a useful basis for judgment. How does Herodotus conclude? Just give us a, what's his, what's his final way of, of, of summing things up for people? Or his does he... final way of summoning things up for people is, is rather scary. Uh, he ends his history with a couple of scary things. One is a story about Xerxes, who fell in love with the wrong girl, or at least fell in lust with her, and she begged him to give him, give her his beautiful cloak that his wife had woven for him. And of course, she had very little discretion, being a very young person, and we can imagine that she was walking around saying, look at the wonderful thing that my boyfriend, the king, gave me. And Xerxes' wife hears about this, and this, this does not end well. That's one cautionary tale hmm. about a foreign autocrat, but there's also a cautionary tale about the Athenians, because it ends with a crucifixion performed hmm by the Athenian general Xanthippus at the end of the Persian Wars. He crucifies a man, and he kills his son. He has his son beaten to death before his eyes. And who is this Greek general, Xanthippus? It is the father of Pericles, the architect of the Athenian Empire. So I think that when Herodotus wrote about the perils of autocracy and empire, he was very much thinking about the growth of the Athenian Empire in his own lifetime and the way in which the Athenians were going to have problems resulting from imperialism. My guest today has been Jennifer Roberts. She's the author most recently of The Plague of War, but also of Herodotus, a very short, a short, very short introduction from Oxford University Press. Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed this immensely. 
for more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.